0: In 1962, Martin K. Spector, a New York-based advertiser and copywriter, coined the Interrobang. This novel punctuation mark combines the question and exclamation marks, nestling within the former's quizzical curve, the latter's emphatic stroke. Spector's neologism likewise combines interro for interrogate with bang for the word copy editors traditionally use to refer to the exclamation mark. While the Interrobang hasn't exactly entered the common vernacular since 1962, its double meaning, exclamatory inquisitiveness, seemed to perfectly encapsulate the ethos of an interview-based podcast devoted to the art and the science of writing. Either that, or we at the Center for Writing and Scholarly Communication are just punctuation nerds. My name is Liam Monahan. I'm the program coordinator of the CWSC at UBC Library and the host of Interabang, a writing podcast. Each episode will feature an interview with one or more writers affiliated with the University of British Columbia.
1: That did not happen by accident. It happened by a lot of investment, not just by the three of us, but also the other researchers in all of these different elements of the communication plan and figuring out who we could email it to and, and pulling all of this together. So it's it's a reminder, I think, to anybody who writes that if you want it to be noticed, uh, most of the time you have to put in a lot of work after it's actually been produced to keep putting it out there, making it relevant to people, letting them know that it exists.
0: I'm excited to welcome three UBC-affiliated writers and researchers to this inaugural episode of Interabang, a writing podcast. Dr. Heidi Twarik is Associate Professor of History and Public Policy at the University of British Columbia. She is the author or co-editor of three books, as well as over 30 journal articles and book chapters. Her latest book is The News from Germany. The competition to control world communications 1900 to 1945 published by harvard university press her current work examines the history and policy around health communications dr ian beacock is a prize-winning historian and journalist he holds a phd in history from stanford university where he specialized in modern europe modern germany and the history of democracy his reporting and analysis on contemporary politics as well as his criticism has appeared in publications including the new republic the atlantic eon and foreign policy he is currently working on a book about democratic feelings in modern history essay ojo holds a bachelor of science in international relations from Leeds city university nigeria and a master of public policy in global affairs from the university of british columbia where she studied as an african leader of tomorrow's scholar and an R. Howard Webster Foundation Fellow. Her work focuses on policy, advocacy, and communications around gender, youth inclusion, and human rights, particularly freedom of expression, access to information, digital rights, and internet freedoms. Her most recent publication is Redefining Policy in Practice, Unraveling Definitions of Sexual Violence Through a Survivor-Centered Approach. Together, Torek, Beacock, and Ojo are the authors of the policy report, Democratic Health Communications During COVID-19, A Rapid Response. Published in 2020, the report is a study of the various communication strategies taken by democratic jurisdictions around the world to manage the novel coronavirus pandemic. In view of this data, and in consideration of the essential principles of democratic societies, The report recommends a five-pronged approach to health communications, which will benefit both civic and public health. Although non-pharmaceutical interventions such as mask wearing and physical distancing, as well as the eventual arrival of vaccines are crucial, the message will only ever be as good as the medium. Thus, as the authors state in no uncertain terms, more effective communications could save lives. Welcome, Heidi, Ian, and Sa. Thank you so much for joining us on the Interabang Writing Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you all here, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your policy report, Democratic Health Communications During COVID-19, A Rapid Response. So I wonder if you could just start by telling us a bit about the report, maybe some of the background about how it came to be, and then I have some specific questions about the actual writing that you've done here.
1: So maybe I can start and give a a bit of the background as the professor PI on the project. So I have been working for a couple of years on the history of health communications. And uh, as many people who work in these kinds of fields, continually confronting people who said, aren't epidemics a thing of the past? And I would say, I fear not. Um, And alas, then COVID-19 hit us. And so, of course, I wanted to find a way to bring my expertise in health communications into this contemporary policy world. And I was lucky enough that Ian was thinking about some allied questions with democracy. So we started to put our heads together about whether we could come up with a project. And we wanted to make sure it was a global project, thinking about as many countries as possible who were dealing with COVID communications effectively. And then when I started to think about who could be great people, who could be collaborators with us, we made sure we had a team that also included epidemiologists, political scientists. We had a think tank based in Germany on board. And then when I was thinking of other people who are experts in platform governance and have expertise in areas of the world that, that I don't, essay was one of my former students who immediately came to mind, who would obviously be an integral asset to such a project. So it was One that came about very serendipitously and organically through people I had met in very, very different walks of life and a commitment from everybody who was participating to be interdisciplinary and to find rigorous evidence-based solutions to an urgent contemporary policy problem.
0: That's fantastic. And remind me when exactly it was published. I know it was last year.
1: It was September. So we submitted the grant in May and we basically started working just after that, did in-depth research on nine countries on five different continents, all using original language research, did a draft by, I think it was mid-July, worked on it finished it and published it in the very first week of September. So yeah. it was a very rapid turnaround in consonant with the title.
0: Really, you know, I think what's striking about it is how thoughtful it is in a way that I think offers sustainable solutions to some of these, or at least approaches to some of these problems, even given that it was written so hurriedly. So that's to all of your credit. I want to ask you about some of the statements that you make in your top-level executive summary. You write that if communications are a health intervention, democratic communications can be a civic intervention. You conclude that same statement by stating that it's important that policymakers, elected officials, and citizens alike recognize the importance of clear, consistent, compassionate, and contextual communications during a time of crisis. Public health depends on it. The health of democracy does too. And those last two sentences are really compelling to me. I think that there's an extended kind of metaphor or conceit that you're working with here, which is, I guess, that of the body politic, the idea of the human body being, in some sense, analogous to the body of a citizenry. Could you say more about why you picked up on this metaphor and chose to frame your recommendations along those lines?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to pick up on that. There's a rich, long tradition in various different streams of political thought about the body politic, you know, I think with this kind of writing in this report, we were first and foremost trying to solve a very particular problem in terms of our audience, which was how do we get people who are, focused on COVID and who are swamped with information and decisions to make, to think in the same frame about the coronavirus pandemic and the ongoing challenges to democracy that were at the forefront of everyone's attention in 2019. And we worried we're sort of running the risk of being submerged by the pandemic. We thought that talking about these two problems in the same language was one step of getting people to connect them. Visualizing and thinking about public health is actually quite difficult. I mean, thinking about our individual health is something that's intuitive to a lot of us, Public health works in a lot of thinking about the health of a population is statistical, it's sometimes difficult to think about. And so I think using this metaphor of health in relation to a society or a country or a democracy is something that's a little more intuitive to us. And so we hope that that would help people think this through. The other thing I would say about that maybe is that, you know, we like to think sometimes that health comes to us through a magical intervention and Mm. that there is one solution that will suddenly make us healthier. And we're learning through even with COVID that that's not quite true, that even with a vaccine, for instance, there's lots of other work that we need to do to keep ourselves healthy and protect those around us. And really the same is true of democracy. There isn't one magic solution or silver bullet, but in fact, it's a habitual thing. It's about how we treat each other on a daily basis and the kinds of habits we build. And so I think that's another point where this analogy works fairly well.
0: And in that sense, and I think this is one of the kind of hopeful things even that you can take away from your report, it's reassuring maybe to think of ways in which this crisis can actually provide an opportunity to strengthen the health of our democracies at the same time as we strengthen our public health.
2: There are elements that are within our control and elements that are without it, and we have to sort of do our best within that to go forward.
0: I have another question about metaphors. You folks write that communicators should describe the pandemic response democratically. This means avoiding militaristic metaphors that are hierarchical and limit space for agency. Instead, pandemic messaging should rely on more democratically aligned metaphors. So we've discussed one of those, the the body politic. I wonder if there are other metaphors that you have come across in your research or that you would advise folks to take up in terms of encouraging both public health and the health of democracy.
1: So one of the things I think that was really interesting for us in writing this report was seeing that some leaders and some public health officials reflected very carefully on exactly this question so we know that dr bonnie henry chief public health officer of bc actually thought about this quite hard before choosing her metaphors of the storm that Mm. hits us all but different people are in different boats some have a leaky boat some have fancy yacht etc so it's also true of places like south korea that we studied that, that actually there was quite a lot of thought that leaders who communicated effectively put into exactly these questions. So in South Korea, for example, there was lots of talk of COVID being a relay race that everybody had to run together. So you had to keep the baton going. So you could give it the next runner, the idea of that then being something that was democratic, where you were all in it together, um, a metaphor that wouldn't have occurred to me unless we brought South Korea into this study. So each one of these metaphors is different, but they, they worked within the context of those places. Maybe a storm wouldn't have worked for South Korea. There was a deliberation about choosing the relay race. But each of these avoided that problem of the militaristic metaphor, the idea that everything would be ordered from on high and people simply had to obey rather than really trying to pull in civil society, which was one of the principles we found from the ground up with effective health communicators.
0: The idea being maybe that each context is unique and that the metaphors that are going to resonate with the population have to be informed by the cultural and societal environment in which they're being sent out into the world, maybe.
3: Just going into how figurative language is used, I think that's one of the major places where context and language comes in because you either really miss Mark and say something that nobody can relate to or people don't think is the right part or you say the right thing and people completely understand what you're saying. And in a place like Senegal, for instance, where there's French, there's Wolof, there's a lot Mm. of different languages and native languages, a phrase or a sentence could be something that everybody understands, or it could be something that all the different tribes and languages understand completely differently. So half of the population could get it and half of the population could be completely upset by something you've said. So I think context and understanding the society and sort of appealing to the values and emotions there is very important.
0: As writers and communicators within academia, as well as outside of it, I wonder if you have thought about sort of generally speaking, some of the risks and benefits of using metaphorical or figurative language in terms of effectively reaching an audience.
2: I can maybe start by saying that I'm woefully bad at it as a writer. <laughs> I don't find it natural to me. I sometimes mm-hmm. struggle when I'm writing to come up with a good simile or metaphor. So I wish I were better at it. But that said, I think it can be extraordinarily powerful because metaphors, you know, as we found in writing this report, just really structure people's thought in an extremely deep way and can help them yeah. plug into a complex idea quite quickly. I mean, the downside, of course, or the risk is whether or not the metaphor or analogy you're drawing is entirely aligned with the message you're trying to send or the material that you're trying to cover. And if there are some subtle ways in which it isn't, and it can actually lead the reader off down a different path or help them misunderstand what it is you're actually trying to say.
1: Yeah, I think the only thing that, that I would add to that is that, of course, there's a lot of linguistic and other research about some of the potential dangers of using these metaphors, and and even just how they're so embedded in the way that we write that we often don't even notice that we're doing it. So certainly one of the things that this report did for me, although I'd already been interested in in metaphors and politics, is it really drove home uh, the power of them, how, as essay said, they can be alienating unintentionally, or how they can draw people together. So I think it really, for me, drove home for the first time in a policy report, how these apparently simple choices could have huge impacts in what citizens thought about the response and whether they felt themselves to be a part of it or not.
0: Yeah yeah and as a writer it could have a similar uh, effect on your on your reader um, of your individual document.
1: Yes I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think it yeah. could but it's certainly one that's made me feel much more careful about how one would use those metaphors because often they're simply thought of something that's just a flowery rhetoric you add into a piece in fact i think our report shows the real power of them and so if you understand their power you also have to be cautious about when you do and don't use them and how that may or may not have positive or negative consequences for whatever audience it is you're trying to write towards
0: Your report proposes five broad principles that can underpin any democratic public health communication strategy. You call these the RAPID principles because rapidity is an essential element of an effective response. RAPID is an acronym, and it stands for rely on autonomy, not orders, attend to values, emotions, and stories, pull in citizens and civil society, institutionalize communications, and describe it democratically. And these are all constituent parts of the approach that, to public health messaging that you're advocating in this report. It occurs to me, though, that this is something that might have been titled differently if you know you had named these components slightly differently, if you had worded things in a different way. And so you might not even have wound up with the idea of rapidity being integral if there wasn't the kind of serendipity of those <laughs> words fitting together. And because it is such a central part of your policy report. I'm just curious how you landed on the acronym in terms of the actual writing process of bringing all these different ideas into one sort of shorthand phrase.
1: I began thinking about the different potential principles because I did a very, very preliminary presentation on some early thoughts on this research back in May, actually to uh, the Language Sciences Initiative, which is also based at UBC. And so I started to play around with what from my preliminary research seemed to be some underlying principles. And I was influenced at the same time by reading a study that was done of uh, 12 different countries and citizens' internet searches and purchases during the beginning of COVID. And what that study found was that the quicker that governments released guidelines on COVID, the fewer quack cures were searched for by these citizens online. So essentially the rapidity was really key. I started to wonder, what kind of principles do we have? The word RAPID came to mind from reading this study. Um, And I started to think about whether the principles I'd been devising fitted into the acronym RAPID. Um, So it was a bit of both coming together in the middle, which I I guess goes back to your previous question of the power and danger of metaphors. So maybe this is the power and danger of acronyms (laughs) coming into play. Um, But the sort of final step of this was initially, and, and I kept revising this, and then of course, when Ian and SA became integral parts of the project, we kept revising this as well also based on the evidence um, but one of the other steps that we worked on together was initially i had been thinking about this in terms of nouns I think it might have been Ian um, who suggested what about if it's verbs so mm-hmm. it's things that policymakers can do and it's actions that they can take and so this is how Rapid evolved in various ways into becoming these five short phrases that are verbs so they are action-based
2: I was really struck by how collaborative this. I mean the whole process of writing this document was extremely collaborative. But if you think of this acronym in particular, what were the different ways we could could phrase these things? How could we write about them differently? How could we bundle them differently? I mean, because at an early stage of the research, we had some principles, as Heidi had set out, but lots of other bits and pieces that we thought were interesting, you know, the material on metaphor, for instance, or you know bits here and there. We we're trying to think how do we bundle these together? And so there was this real collaborative brainstorming writing process of how do we describe it? And can we make it fit the letters? And I think we were prepared for it not to work, to rethink it and go in a different direction, but we were lucky to be able to sync it up.
3: Yeah, I'll just add that there was a lot of flexibility too in how we each changed our aspects. Cause I think Ian and I had different letters in the beginning, but our sections when we actually wrote them up were for the different ones. So we actually spent a lot of time trying to reconfigure that and look at what we were actually saying and whose piece really fit into what and then we structured that to fit the letters as opposed to the letters making it that we had to do those exact things as we initially set out to do.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean, gimmick or not, I think it's effective and it certainly (laughs) sticks in the mind, you know, this idea of a rapid response. So I think that's really fascinating. I think that it's something people who are writing documents like this might think about the kinds of tools that are available to them, like metaphors, like acronyms to get their messaging across in a way that is going to be memorable. So it's really effective.
2: This might be something we talk about later too, but Mm. I, I think we were aware through this process that people... Not only were there different audiences, but that people would be reading this in different ways and with yeah, different amounts of time yeah. at their fingertips or maybe encountering it in different places and so the different parts of the report fit together in this way that some can be pulled out. you know we wanted the rapid acronym to stand on its own, yeah you know, also being embedded
0: Your report is carefully structured and it adheres to what I would imagine are certain genre-based conventions of the policy report. Yeah, I imagine that the whole thing wasn't conceived from scratch in terms of its structure. On the other hand, though, you make choices which are clearly bespoke, intended just for this particular context, such as devoting an entire section to the question, what are democratic health communications. So I wonder if you can just tell me about the process of writing up your findings in anticipation of suiting them to the genre of the policy report specifically. What did this genre do for you as writers? Did it constrain you in certain ways? Were those constraints helpful? Were they hindering?
1: So I think Essay should answer this question first, as technically okay. the only one of the three of us with an actual degree in public policy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Essay, you should go for it first.
3: Yeah, I mean, the big thing coming from my public policy degree and just having done my capstone project was length. And I think I even got penalized for my capstone project being too long and being just a wordy writer, which I am. (laughs) So it was good going into writing each section, knowing it had to be a certain length. And it was okay if it went a little bit more or a little bit less, but having length as a constraining factor, because for me, that helped me just get right to the point, cut out my extra letters and really do the right work of communicating effectively, which is what we're telling people to do.
1: We played around with this and it was an extremely collaborative process. So while the three of us are the co-authors of the main body of the report, the appendix actually has all of the individual researchers who wrote their own summaries of the country reports that they had researched. And that's actually very unusual. I can't think of many other examples of that. And that's actually something that wasn't clear at all when we began the project, that this is Mm -hmm. how the report would end up. So there was the three of us as collaborators in writing it, but also all of the others who were research assistants, but also co-writers. And we came to that conclusion as a group. And we even decided as a group together of all of the researchers that we would all in each of those country summaries in the appendix follow the exact same format so that it would be very But that was a decision that we made as a a collective group, which was, I think, a really helpful collaborative moment, because it meant that everybody who'd been an integral part of the writing and the research got credit, which sometimes is a problem in other types of policy reports that researchers might get their name in the acknowledgements, but it's not clear and legible what the work is and particularly for people who are students or otherwise looking for work afterwards that kind of acknowledgement I think was important and then the other thing that you mentioned is it in some ways looks like a normal policy report it has the things you'd expect has the executive summary um, it has passed it has a conclusion etc but then it it does depart in some pretty important ways from how you might usually expect a policy report to go one of those is it's much longer than a normal Mm. policy report Mm. in part because we wanted to really provide the evidence from the many case studies that we had to back up these very broad principles that we were asserting. So we hope that policymakers who had no time, there's the executive summary for you, knowing realistically that many policymakers will read a two-pager and that's it. So we worked hard to make that short. But for others and those who have cited us or pulled from it include the WHO, the European Parliament, the Ontario Hospital Association. So for those kind of people, they wanted the meat of an over 100-page report. So it was designed with both of those things in mind including
2: that page, which is, I mean, for your listeners, is sort of a one page description of what we actually mean by democratic health communications. And we decided to do this to solve a kind of interdisciplinary audience problem. Mm. Because for us, this, the sense that we were bringing into the report was drawing on political science and political theory, democratic thought, of what does it actually mean to be democratic? What are the criteria we're using to make this judgment? And we wanted to articulate that in a way that would make sense to experts within those fields, but also be quickly accessible to journalists or to policymakers. And so we wrote this short little one page bundle. And I remember having conversations with political scientists about it to make sure that we were getting it right and that it Mm -hmm. made sense to them. And so I think, yeah, that was a departure from the traditional form that we made. And it was made to fix this interdisciplinary audience problem and strength of the report, I think, too. The one other thing I would say is that part of, our process was also just looking at other reports throughout this writing process, keeping our eyes peeled for other COVID reports, for other kinds of policy reports that you know, we had read from the OECD or from different places and really paying attention to, well, how are they using visualizations? How are they structuring this report? What do we really like about how they've captured this problem, what don't we like? What do we feel like we can maybe improve upon or find a different way to suit our particular needs? So that kind of research was happening in the background. And I think Mm -hmm. we were always informed by and trying to learn lessons and best practices from other examples, which again, is one of the recommendations we make in the report about COVID communication. It's all nested together here.
0: It will be reassuring for students approaching a, a writing task that they haven't performed before or lately to hear that professional established researchers go to see what other folks are up to in order to find inspiration and, and guidance. <laughs> One sort of theme that I'm hearing throughout the conversation so far is the importance of considering audience and you've talked about interdisciplinarity of the audience that you were expecting. And I guess because it's a policy report, you were expecting this to be read by policymakers. <laughs> I wonder if there are any special considerations that you made in terms of the audience that you hoped for for this report?
2: I can maybe start by saying I think there are sort of four big audiences that we were trying to reach and trying to write for simultaneously. Right. One is a sort of policymaker audience of public health officials, but maybe also politicians, ministers who are curious and engaged, but have really rapid time pressures. Second would be expert, academic experts in the particular fields this report touches, which is quite a lot. So we wanted to make sure that epidemiologists could look at this report and feel confident that it made sense that political scientists could do the same, that you know, media scholars and communications experts could do the same. Third is journalists. We wanted to make sure that if this report crossed the email desk of an editor or a reporter working on some question about COVID communications that they could grasp it quickly and we could help them understand this question more deeply. And then I think most aspirationally, we also hoped it might speak to the public in some way. And we wanted to lay mm. the groundwork in our writing for the report, lay the groundwork for how we might communicate this to much broader audiences and make sure it, it really resonated with someone watching the news or opening a newspaper or really trying to think about this problem in their daily life.
0: And I would say, you know, as a lay person, it was really comprehensible and that it was written in a way that allowed me to understand what you were trying to get across. It wasn't overly laced with jargon or conventions of maybe peer-reviewed scholarship that might be a barrier to non-experts in the field. So it did read very accessibly.
1: That's a relief for us to hear. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Liam.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You spoke to it a little bit already, but There are three of you here, in addition to the five researchers, I think, who are credited as having contributed. And I just wonder if you would say a bit more about the co-authoring of this document. What was the process actually like? Obviously, Heidi, you're the lead faculty investigator. So there's kind of a a leadership role there. How did it all actually get made?
1: (laughs) Ah, now we'll hear if there were any <laughs> negatives that yeah. have not previously been revealed. <laughs> well, I'll maybe take that, that first as the lead faculty author. I mean, I, I originally trained as a historian, and historians are generally quite solitary creatures. They often like to sit in their studies alone and single author things, and I'm quite unusual in that I really love to co-author with people. The other principle for me is giving credit to people who do yeah. work, which sometimes yeah. doesn't happen within academia. Yeah, and I think for me the the co-authoring process is one where perhaps I am the original lead and throw some things on the table, but everybody is an equal contributor and co-creator. And there's absolutely no way that this report would have been as rich and have had as great an effect if I hadn't had two such fantastic co-authors and also amazing researchers. Who I must also say, during COVID, when we never had the chance to meet in person, we managed to create a team that that truly collaborated. And it's although it's hard to talk about highlights of a pandemic year, and um, for me this was one of them and I think that comes from starting a project like this with the deliberate belief that it is a collaborative project where everybody has a stake and I'm the one who does the boring bureaucratic bits of getting the money and administering the right. money <laughs> yeah, which everybody else is. <laughs> but everybody else is mercifully spared that and can do the great intellectual work so for me mm. that's the sign of a successful project where everybody mm. feels like they have those kinds of stakes in it and Ian Essay can maybe speak to yeah. whether they think we succeeded in that um, but certainly we had an atmosphere where people could feel free to, to push back and there wasn't a sense of, of hierarchy of me having the last word in it.
0: No. Way. Yeah.
3: I mean I think it was great to have a bit of independence where we could go into our separate documents and create the aspects of the report that we decided we would each take so we split mm-hmm. it all. And we had that independence of not opening a Google doc and seeing Heidi or Ian sort of hovering over you and watching you as you typed, And then we could come back and look at how it all fits together and rework it. And there was a lot of teamwork At some point, I think Ian and I were talking back and forth between our sections because they were overlapping quite a bit. Towards the end, I think there was a lot of communication and that was great just to make sure that everybody was agreeing and feeling like they were part of the process. I think I made a joke at some point about Heidi emailing like she texts, which is amazing just because you get like (laughs) constant feedback and you know what's right and what's wrong and what to edit. And I loved that a lot.
2: Yeah, I will say too, there was a lot of communication behind the scenes for this project. We were really in constant contact, especially in those final weeks in August and September when we were really pulling it together. I agree. I think it worked well. We looked at all the research together. We had meetings and we talked out the structure of the report and what our findings were and what we thought collectively was most interesting and worth emphasizing. We split it up, as essay as was saying, and mm. took, basically took a first swing at different sections. And then we're able to come back together and look at the drafts together. I think at one point I went through and did a kind of tone voice edit on a big chunk of the document to oh, make okay. sure that we were using some similar yeah. phrases. You know, yeah. you know, I think writing by c- committee from scratch is a hard process. And so in this case, when somebody would take a swing, and then we would work it through together worked really well. And I would say we've also done that, you know, out of this report, there've been a number of other kinds of writing that have come out of it, op-eds and policy briefs. And, and there too, I think it was helpful to often talk about the ideas together, have someone take a swing at it, and then collaboratively work through the details.
1: What was kind of interesting at the end, at least for me, is that the voice is all of us and none of us at the same time. That's true. <laughs> and that's because each one of us brought something to the table. So I remember essay was the first one who took a swing at writing her two sections, so two of these principles. And she sent it me and I thought, that's amazing. I would never have thought of this incredible way to weave together these examples from all of the different countries we looked at. That's the yeah. style I'm going to go for when yeah. I write my section, which I procrastinated on writing until <laughs> someone else had written some. And so the style of how we wrote and interweave the countries in each of the sections was essays idea. And then maybe something else came from me or a phrasing or Ian put together the democratic health communication. So how we thought about democracy was influenced through that. If you were to read each one of us writing individually a piece it would not read the same as this. And I think that's usually a sign of a co authored document that's worked well, is it's brought together the strengths of all of the individual authors so that the whole is really greater than the sum of its parts.
0: I wanted to ask you, you open your introduction with a reference to Bill Gates, which is certainly a strong hook. You talk about the fact that he published a lengthy blog post about addressing COVID-19 and you criticize him for addressing only a single sentence to communications. So why did you choose this particular anecdote? What did it do for you? What do you think more generally makes for an effective or compelling introduction?
1: So I'll take part one about Bill Gates and then I'll like essay or Ian take a bit about the introduction. So for sure. me, this Bill Gates blog post was really important because Bill Gates was one of the figures who have been warning about a coming pandemic for, for quite some time. And so yeah. Many policymakers, many members of the public, etc., um, have often looked to him as a guide in some way. He obviously is a victim of many conspiracy theories, but you know, many circles, he's seen as, as a guide. And so when he published this blog post in, I believe it was April, my concern when I read it was communications was effectively nowhere to be found. Mm. So it's a helpful hook in showing communications is really important. And yet some of the leading figures who are talking about pandemics and how we get out of them are simply not paying attention to this crucial factor. So it helps draw the readers in. But it also makes a really important substantive point that if policymakers are listening to Bill Gates like figures, they're missing a real opportunity in what they're doing. And we saw that countries that were effective in communicating around COVID-19 hadn't missed out on that opportunity. So it was Mm -hmm. killing a couple of birds with one stone.
2: Good introductions. I think they're really hard. You'll hear this from other writers in another context. This one was written at the end of the process. Once we knew where the whole thing was going, we were able to write the introduction and pull it all together. I think and hope that the introduction, in addition to the hook uh, with the Bill Gates quotation, sets the tone really quickly, sets a kind of briskness of pace. I think that the introduction of this report moves through a lot fairly quickly, Mm. and fairly quickly gives a sense of the scope of what is about to come. And then I think in introductions, there's always a puzzle of how much do you lay out in advance? How much do you give away? Do you roadmap out the entire Project, or do you gesture and keep people on their toes and keep the reader engaged? And I think in this case, we had the executive summary to do all the road mapping work. And for somebody who just wanted the bullet points, they could go there. And so I think it gave us space in the introduction to gesture a little more broadly at the context and to lay out the stakes really, the stakes of what was to come, both political and epidemiological and moral, and then get into the weeds.
0: I have kind of a follow-up, which is just to ask about the other bookend, the conclusion of your document, which covers a wide variety of topics from the possibility that worse pandemics might follow, that social media dynamics have exacerbated the challenges of communications, and that COVID-19 has given illiberal politicians cover to acquire additional powers and further weaken the rule of law. So these are just some of the sort of gestures that you make in your conclusion, which echo some of the themes that you've been talking about, but are really also kind of food for continued thought, if you will. How did you arrive at these important topics, conceptually and strategically even? How do you make a conclusion, something that can stand on its own and contribute a new piece to your document, while also echoing what came before or reiterating the main principles?
3: Going into that conclusion, we were in June writing this up, and there was still a lot of uncertainty about the COVID 19 pandemic and where we were going, what was going to happen, second wave was coming, lots of things. So, we wanted to give some wrap up of the recommendations and what we had talked about in the report, but we also wanted to provide just things to think about as we're going into this. What kinds of communication tools would we want to use, helping all the different contexts and countries think about? you don't have to do this exactly this way, but how should I think about approaching it? And I think that's what we really tried to do in the conclusion.
1: This is one of the things when I'm working with students that we talk about the most. Mm. What is the difference between a conclusion and an introduction? How do you do them? And so given that this is a writing podcast, maybe I'll I'll speak to some of that. So one way that I tend to think about this is that the introduction is the funnel into what you're doing and the conclusion is the funnel out. And exactly the material you use in each one, sometimes you have to move them around people write themselves towards their arguments so they'll often write a whole paper and actually the argument is in the conclusion so in Mm, the revision what they have to do is take the arguments in the conclusion put it up into the introduction and then they have to write a conclusion again and if i remember rightly that was something that happened with this report as well, that some of the things that now sit in the introduction were originally in the conclusion. And so um, when I'm writing, I always think about those two principles, the funnel in, funnel out, and that some of the things I think originally should belong to the conclusion probably belong in the introduction.
3: I think That's,
2: a good example of that is the line that you quoted earlier to us about how public health depends on better communication and the health of democracy does too. I think that mm-hmm. has ended up in the executive summary. That's actually the final line of the conclusion. The sort of resonant sort of last line of the chorus. I think that speaks to Heidi's point that we got our way there. And then some of that actually made a lot more sense in the executive summary or being pulled back up towards the top.
0: I always find just sort of personally, I actually think by writing. So it's not just that you're writing what you've already thought of. It's that you're actually sometimes doing the thinking through the writing. So it makes sense that you would have to go back and bring things back to the heart of the argument.
2: There's a great essay by Lynn Hunt, a wonderful French historian and former president of the American Historical Association that Mm. that explores that point about writing as thinking.
0: Your report features many visual representations of data, from bar charts and line graphs to color-coded maps of the world. These representations have titles like Daily Confirmed COVID-19 Cases Per Million People or Economic Decline in the Second Quarter of 2020. I'm curious what you hope to achieve by using visual representations like these. What can images do for you rhetorically or persuasively that words alone cannot?
2: I think the very first thing to say about these images is that they would have been impossible without another of our collaborators who's not on this call today, Sean Wu, who did a brilliant job finding this data, visualizing it in a really stunning and arresting way, and really helping us think about what data we wanted to include and what made sense, you know, in this kind of visual scorecard of the pandemic at the beginning of the report, what would be helpful to see. So I think that's worth emphasizing first off the of that.
1: I think if I remember rightly that when we were going through and we were thinking about what the report should look like, then we cast around and said, let's just find some examples. And I believe Essay sent in a couple and then that sparked a conversation about what kind of graphics we could do. And even if I remember, it might have been Essay or a couple of others who mentioned that Sean Wu, one of the researchers had some expertise in graphic design. So it was really serendipity that one of our researchers ended up being the graphic designer for the report. But that for us was a great advantage because he fundamentally understood the content and could really help them with these visuals. And for me, it was also about trying to think about how we could summarize some pretty complex things going on with nine different (laughs) democratic jurisdictions and then also two provinces within Canada. How can we find a few visual representations that just told people, these are the places that we're looking at and here's the general trajectory of what happened there. And the final reason is because one of the things we do in the report is talk about the importance of visual representation. And so Mm. it would have been a little hypocritical to have none of it in our own report. You have to practice what you preach.
2: There's the maps in the report and the graphs at the beginning. But there's also a little toolkit image that Sean made that features throughout the report of our five rapid principles yeah. icons. We also knew or hoped that something like that might circulate beyond the report itself and live on social media or by email. And so I, th- I think it's not an image or through the visualization about how people should think a certain way, but it's a quick glance at the toolkit and a way to easily identify the five major principles of the report. Yeah. It's color coded too. I mean, I think this is right. Sean's yeah. idea to, to help readers move through the report and be able to identify the principles. Yeah. Uh, and I remember spending time making sure that the contrast between the different colors we chose would be broadly visible and understandable to everybody taking a look at this report on, on any device.
0: Even at the level of just the font, you bold the names of territories and, uh, y- you know, use different kinds of visual cues like that to make it easier to find what you're looking for when you're reading. There was clearly a lot of care that went into the overall look of the piece.
1: Yeah, and I'd say that's one of the advantages of having chosen to go down the route of a policy report that we published through the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions at UBC was that mm we could make all of those decisions completely independently. Of course, if you publish in a peer-reviewed journal or you're publishing through someone else, you have to follow their house style. Right, Right? And most peer-reviewed journals, it's simply black and white. That's also true for any graphics, whereas we had a a great deal of freedom to design it however we wanted because there was no house style coming from CSDI. And I think if I remember right, it might have been SA who first started bolding the country names, and then we thought, oh, that looks like a good idea. But as with so many things in this report, I can't 100% remember exactly who came up with it. And then we decided it was a good idea, which, as I said, I think is a sign of good collaboration that everybody brought these really great seemingly small ideas to the table that actually help with the legibility of what would mm, otherwise yeah. be quite a dense report
0: a number of opinion pieces have come out of the report with the findings and recommendations being disseminated in traditional news media and maybe also in social media so i'm just yeah i'm curious to know about the process of converting your research From the genre of the policy report to that of the op-ed, they're very different audiences, I suppose, is maybe where you start when you're thinking about writing for a newspaper, for example. So yeah, just I'd love to hear from each of you what that process was like.
2: I can start by saying there are a couple of different kinds of forms of knowledge translation I think that came out of the original report. I mean, one of the first was quite informal but I think very powerful. And this was Heidi's brainchild was a Twitter thread. This was part mm-hmm. of one of the first ways that we pulled out the essential pieces of this report and tried to share them more broadly. But yeah, op-eds was something that we kind of worked on in the weeks and months after the report. And the report covers so much ground, thanks to our researchers and the big team that we had pulling it together. We kind of kept our eyes peeled for ways to connect it to the public debate and really bring our findings to bear. I will say, you know, we wrote some policy briefs and longer essays as well. Op-eds are kind of tricky, I will say, both to write and to place for your listeners. Placement is really tough. Newspaper cycles move very quickly. Making something extremely timely is important. Uh, but you're also constrained by length. And this comes back to what I was saying much earlier. You know, with an op-ed, we have 700 words. Got to make your point as, as swiftly as you can, tie it as timely as possible to what's going on. So for instance, we wrote one in September about the BC election that was called and tried to place that in context of other countries that had done pandemic elections. Or we wrote a piece for the New Republic in December about the new Biden administration and COVID communications.
3: Yeah. I mean, one thing for me is I had some communications background going into this project, but I think I learned so much more about communications after it. We had the initial Twitter thread that we had worked on and planned to send out. But one thing that has amazed me, even till now, we're in 2021. And Ian and Heidi have always found ways to sort of put that into anything anyone is literally talking about on Twitter. (laughs) And I think that is the most amazing thing because they can really find ways to connect with anyone and find a way to make this something relevant that someone should look at. And it
1: is. And I think that's been a really amazing thing to see.
0: Mm, That's very cool.
1: As a professor who studies media history and contemporary communications policy, it was perhaps unsurprising that I said we had to have a communications plan for the launch of our own report, particularly in in this age. Op-eds are just one small slice of what we did. So They were, of course, important. They reached certain audiences, but so too was the Twitter thread, the engagement with people. Um, Another was just simply making a list of all of the people we should email with the report. So I probably Mm. spent about two days just emailing people who I thought would be interested, who Uh probably wouldn't come across it via Twitter. There's a quite long communications plan that we had to go along with this report. So I think that's Helpful to know that the many places in which this report was cited or written about, which range from you know CNN, the Financial Times, CBC, New York Times, which is a complete surprise to everybody, <laughs> that did not happen by accident. It mm. happened by a lot of investment, not just by the three of us, but also the other researchers in all of these different elements of the communication plan and figuring out who we could email it to and and pulling all of this together. So it's it's a reminder, I think, to anybody who writes that if you want it to be noticed, uh, most of the time you have to put in a lot of work after it's actually been produced to keep putting it out there, making it relevant to people letting them know that it exists. And then the other thing that that we did, again, this is me wearing my policy hat and communications hat, is to try and track some of this impact. So to say, what newsletters was this report listed in, cited in? And then what started to happen after a certain period of time is that news media outlets would reach out to us for comments because now you had become established as someone who really had a grasp on this field. So I've done CBC all across the country. Um, Ian and I have both had different times where we've done a CDC call-in show because this call-in show was very excited about the concept of metaphors and things like that. So so what also happens is at a certain point, you've been quoted and then others will come back to you. So I've even had, I think it was Salt Lake Tribune got in touch with me. None of that happened by accident. It was Mm. about that kind of concrete communications plan to put this out there and also having a solid report that really backed up what we were saying. But I think it's useful for listeners to know that when something looks like it's gotten a lot of attention, almost always there is a plan behind it. And there's a huge amount of effort that goes into that It doesn't happen by magic.
2: Right, right. I think the other element to that for listeners to know is there are also lots of emails in the background that went unresponded to or, you know, pitches that got rejected or attempts to place public writing or op eds or stories that weren't quite right. And that, you know, that didn't fit the needs at the time, or didn't, you know, mm. did, didn't manage to land it, you know, you can't be discouraged, I think, you just have to keep pitching it, keep sending it out into the world.
0: That's great. Well, I just want to thank you all for the work that you put into this document. I think it's a really compelling piece of policy writing. And as I said, I, as a lay person, got a lot out of reading it, just in terms of thinking about my own conduct and my own language around the COVID-19 pandemic. So I can imagine that if it had that kind of an impact, on me as an individual, what a broad reaching impact it must have had on a societal basis in terms of all the different places that you've been able to distribute the message to. Thank you all for all the work on it. I look forward to seeing the effects of your policy report trickle down one day when we can all go out into the world and (laughs) see each other in person again. Um, It'll be well worth it. Interrobang, a writing podcast, is an open-access educational resource created by the Centre for Writing and Scholarly Communication at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Pre-production was completed by Liam Monaghan and Bo Lehman. Audio engineering was completed by Arya M. Picaris. Visit our website, writing.library.ubc.ca to learn more about the services and resources through which we support writing at UBC.